0: everyone. This is Dr. Christiana Best, host of the podcast Inside Out, Outside In. This podcast was developed for and by colleges and universities and its surrounding and supporting communities. The goal of the podcast is to inform, educate, and build community as well as inspire change. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of any college, university, or institution. Today's topic is COVID-19 vaccine. Currently, there are two vaccines that are out, one by Pfizer and one by Moderna. At the same time, there is a great deal of confusion and concern around issues of safety, around issues of trust, and certainly around uh, the equitable distribution of the vaccine communities of color. For today's episode, I have five guests. I'm going to introduce them and then we're going to get into the conversation. The first guest is Franklin Uday. Franklin recently earned his Master's of Public Health in 2020. Currently, he's working as a clinical research assistant at the New England Sickle Cell Institute. He chose public health because he wanted to be in a space where he can address health disparities and inequities. Next is Maria Antoni, and she's a second-year medical student at the University of Connecticut of Medicine. She has been involved in bench research surrounding involvement of testing, sensitivity, and specificity, as well as cost and time effectiveness COVID-19 testing at the health center. Ben Kusum is an emergency room patient care associate who hopes to lead by example when getting the vaccine on the first day for Connecticut. He got his degree in biology at the University of Connecticut and plans to return for his master's in respiratory therapy. Alexis Howard is a licensed clinical social worker who currently work as a program director of the Coaches in Child Welfare with Hunter College, Silberman School of Social Work in New York City. Alexis is currently a doctoral student at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She's a mother, and she's here today both as a social worker and as a mother, and her daughter, Nia, is also present with us today. Nia Howard-Fenton is a sophomore at the University of Vermont, the Rubenstein School, where she is pursuing a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Studies. Nia is an active member of the college's Mosaic Center for Students of Color. She enjoys creative activities, and I wanted her here as a college student who is currently attending classes remotely. And I wanted her to share her experience, but also her concerns and fears as it relates to taking the vaccine when it becomes available. So who on the panel has taken the vaccine and what was that experience like for you? So
1: I actually recently got the vaccine about a week and a half ago. And honestly, it was a pretty simple experience because of the job that I have, I was able to get it this early and all it took was for me to just go follow a link that they sent me um pick my time and then i just went there and then when i got there they we scheduled a second dose right away i took the vaccine and then i went to a waiting area so they wait to make sure that there's no reaction so and so make sure that everyone's okay after taking it due to like some people having history of anaphylaxis so because of that and encompassing all that the whole process took about 20 minutes from when I got walked in there to when I walked up. Right.
0: And how are you feeling?
1: I feel fine. Uh, there wasn't really much side effects other than a little soreness where I, where they gave me the shot, but the soreness went away by the time I drove back to my house. So okay. I feel fine. I don't have any, I didn't experience any fever fatigue, even though that is a common side effect. That's not what I experienced personally, but overall it was a fairly easy and quick experience. And I get my second dose in another three weeks.
0: Great, thank you. Ben, um, you also took the vaccine, right?
2: Yes, I got both doses. I got the first dose sometime last month. I believe it was the 14th. And I got my second dose on Monday, this past Monday. And I actually ran into my manager because when they had the, they had 15 doses. It was the first day the doses had been released in Connecticut and my manager, We ran into each other. She asked me if I was interested in taking a dose and representing the emergency department. And I thought about it for, I don't know, about an hour because I was a little nervous. But then I said, yes. I was like, why not? So then I took it and I had a sore arm for about two days. The 24 hours after the vaccine was when my arm was the sorest. But with the second dose, I had a sore arm for one day and... The, the soreness was, was very sore, maybe 12 hours after the vaccine, and it was more spread out. Um, I felt it in my shoulder blade and my forearm, but besides that, no other side effects. I feel fine now.
0: And how long ago did you say you took it?
2: Uh, four days ago, on Monday.
0: Okay, okay. great. Maria, you work, you're a medical student, and I was told you haven't taken it or you weren't given the opportunity to take it. Why is that?
3: Yeah, so actually, since recently, I think I had spoken to Seha about this last week. But Your sound really- is
0: not coming. Uh, if you can speak closer to the microphone. Yeah, c-
3: can you hear me better now? Yes. Okay. So actually, um, since last week, we were actually given instructions on how to get the vaccine. Uh, we do see patients once every week and we were on break. So I think that they were taking a little while to get back to us for scheduling and just making sure that they had enough doses to fully vaccinate an entire class of 110 students. So we actually got the um the link to sign up and I'll be getting mine on Tuesday.
0: OK, great. So um, is it a voluntary thing or was it mandated, the three of you, from your jobs um, to take the vaccine?
1: So for me in particular, because I work in clinical research and my job does involve contact with patients and because they have sickle cell, they're considered a high risk population. So I was able to get access to the vaccine because of that. So, because of my contact with high risk, with what they would consider a high risk population at my place of employment, I was able to get the vaccine earlier. And it wasn't necessarily it wasn't mandated for us, but um, my boss and my PI did encourage us to uh, to get it. Okay,
0: Ben.
2: Um, for us, it's not mandated, but it's highly recommended.
3: And Maria? Yeah, it's the same for us. It There is no mandate at this time, at least no, um, no information has been really uh, rolling out about a mandatory vaccination, but they do stress to us that it is a privilege to get the vaccine. So especially with the limited doses that we have, they highly, highly encourage us to get it.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Okay, Alexis um you're both uh you're both a parent as well as a social worker and um i'm curious to know um what your plans are are there any concerns about taking the vaccine if it becomes available to you will you be taking it So I haven't
4: made up my mind, although maybe after today, when I hear from my public health colleagues and medical colleagues, I'm welcoming having greater conversation, you know, increased conversation with people because it really helps you think about it. So um, I work with child welfare staff, although we're all working remotely but occasionally I do see them. Unfortunately, they're not classified as essential workers because if they were, there would be a plan in place, I think, for them to be able to get the vaccine. So there's no plan for me, at least from the workforce, as you know, we heard from um, our colleagues that they were highly recommended. That's not gonna happen for me in my capacity. It's gonna be much more of an individual decision and so I'm I'm still in the process of deciding. I mean, I know it's not a cure, one. So I think, and I'd love to hear what those are, you know, you had your second dose already. So you're still, I'm assuming, getting medical recommendations that, look, we still have to wear a mask. We still have to social distance, right? Like this is not, this doesn't mean all of that is over, right? So that's the, you know. And I think, um, I don't know if this is where you're leading. For me, you know, we've done a lot of racial equity work together in New York City. And so um, obviously, I'm well aware of the historical context of, you know, Black people's relationship with institutions on how white supremacy is embedded in our policy and practices. And of course, that is sort of in my mind about the vaccine um i i have worries i mean it's not like i'm thinking well uh, there's going to be a vaccine that says b for black people and if and 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 w for white people so if you're online at CVS i don't think you know that they're going to say okay here here comes alexis now she's going to get the b one right <laughs> you know i'm not thinking i'm not thinking that although You know, what I do think about is even for getting the testing, um, there were areas where uh, they were drive up testing only, not walk up testing. And so what does that mean? You know, as a social worker, I think about what does that mean for people that don't have access to their own transportation? Do you take an Uber to go get, you know? So I just wonder in terms of the distribution and how the dissemination plan since we do know about health disparities for all communities. Um, and, and even though I'm going back to the joke that I don't think that in, the, in my CVS that they're gonna have one that says B for me and W for someone else. I would wonder though, if it was a community that was demographically all people of color, whether or not they might get the tainted batch and I'm not saying that would apply to me, but when you hear about some of the conditions, like um, the, the temperature, the, the vaccines have to be kept at a certain temperature, right? And again, I don't know all the specifics, but you know, I, I would wonder about that, right? That, that's yeah. part of you know. But I, I think eventually, I would definitely say yes. I would take it. Um, I'm not mandated to or highly recommended in the work that I am currently involved in. Um, and so that that's my position at this point.
0: Okay, thank you for that. I hear your concerns given the historical uh, implications. Um, and Nia, last but certainly not least, um, you're a young person. There's always all these myths about young people not catching it. And of course, um, you know, you're a college student, and while you are currently attending remotely, I'm sure at some point you want to return to campus. So, are there any concerns? Will you take it if it becomes available? Please share. Um,
5: Wait, can you hear me good? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, I'm studying about environmental science and things, so I know that vaccines are important for herd immunity and all that. Like, I'm not knocking vaccines. It's obviously an important part to, like, make sure that the greater community is safe and things. But I feel like I, as a black person, like my mom was saying before, I can't really help but be, like, skeptical about trusting the government to just take care of this especially when they haven't been taking care of it before the vaccine and everything and it has I feel like it's been rushed and apparently they're saying it's been through all the trials and everything like that but I feel like I just can't help but like think about well you know what if things do go wrong or what if it becomes like mandatory and then that puts force on something which obviously is not going to be available to everyone and there's going to be equity issues with that whole thing. But in terms of like being a college student and a young person, there is a side of me that's like, well, it would be helpful to like take it so I could eventually try to get back to normal life, whatever that really means right now and it would be nice to be able to go back to school and have things go back to the way they were if that requires a vaccine then I guess I would I would think about taking it but as of right now I'm not sure like if I have a distinct answer for it and I think it's also something that I would probably like talk to my doctor about and things and just get more opinions on it rather than making, like, a quick decision
0: on... So I'm hearing you say you have some reservations. Yeah. The historical context and the fact that it was developed so fast. I mean, you brought that up. Um, the actual term that was being used is Operation Warp Speed. Um, and when people hear the term Operation Warp Speed, it, it, does, it does evoke... To some degree, some concerns because we have known that vaccines take a long time to be developed, and while this is this is a desperate situation and we needed to have it quicker than um, than you know than normal, um, I hear that people have concerns. So who has concerns, and um, what are some of the concerns about Operation Warp Speed?
1: So it's understandable that there is concern regarding the vaccine, and there's a lot of different layers as to why people would uh, would feel skeptical about taking it in the first place. Obviously, the term Operation Warp Speed is kind of provocative in a way that's making people wonder, like, are they rushing this vaccine? But the whole point of the Operation Warp Speed is that's just the federal government partnering with the pharmaceutical companies and the people who make the vaccines, to mass produce and distribute the vaccine. But I think one thing that we need to understand is that the federal government can't, um, and in, in inter, interject themselves in the actual research. So the re, the research around that's being developed for the vaccine and the uh, manufacturing distribution, that's all independent of the federal government. The, what the federal government can do is provide money for the funding for the research. And then when the vaccines are ready, that's when they buy the doses from these companies. So when Pfizer like sells however many doses to the federal government or Moderna sells those doses. So the federal government does have a role in more of the legit the logistical side of it. That's what the point of operation well that's what that's what like they're saying that the point of operation works is more the logistical side of it. And I think just because of the whole idea of rushing a vaccine. And they hear at speed it speeded thinking, oh, they're just trying to rush this through and just give it to all of us and make us take credit for it. And another thing that I feel is what's causing skepticism is the fact that we haven't really seen what it's like to make a new vaccine in real time. Like we've seen like the vaccines that we take, like when we're little, we take like the flu shot and then we take like the MMR and the smallpox vaccines. We weren't alive to see what life was like before those vaccines were um, developed. So I feel it's very easy to dismiss the importance of it when we don't see what it's like before the vaccine. So that's another thing. And in terms of the research being rushed, one of the obstacles in terms of the speed of a research is uh, it sounds like easy, but it's money and funding. So usually when you have more funding and more research is going into a certain uh, research um, project, you have more money, you can get uh, more people on board you can have more participants. Usually what holds research back is lack of funding, lack of participants and low disease prevalence, which none of which were an issue in this case. So we were able to expedite the research a lot faster. It didn't compromise the safety of the research or the integrity of it, even though like it's a very like, it's an administration that a lot of people don't trust. They themselves can't put them, like interject themselves into the research, all they can do is try and provide funding and support from the outside. But in terms of the research that happens, that's completely independent of the federal government. And what the Operation Morp Speed is more of the logistical side of it. But the fact that we have, we've dumped a lot of money into this, and the fact that we've had about 40,000 people participate in these clinical trials, and there's enough disease prevalence where we can generate enough data, that clears a lot of obstacles in terms of developing the vaccine and having research for it. And another thing is because cor- this virus wasn't necessarily made, I mean, this vaccine wasn't necessarily made from scratch. Coronavirus is a family of viruses. It's not, like COVID-19 is, is just a particular um, strain of the, the virus that we're experiencing right now. But in terms of coronavirus, it's more of like a family of viruses. So it's a lot easier to develop some develop a vaccine to generate immunity when you have things to work with before and this isn't the first time that they've looked into research from this before. So I think because a lot there's a gap in knowledge in terms of that aspect, it's really easy for us to just jump to the conclusion and kind of dismiss the importance of the vaccine or, or have some faith in it that, it that it's safe and effective. But the, the skepticism is understandable.
3: Yeah, I, I did want to actually comment on the whole clinical trial process. Um, I've actually been more so involved in the preclinical lead uh, lead discovery of mul- multiple um, clinical trials. I actually interned at the NIH two summers ago. I was going to return, um, and we, we were reviewing uh, one of the drugs that was actually used currently on the market for COVID-19 if you're admitted into the hospital. And when you look at any given, either if it's a new drug, um, Drug brought on market, or if it's a drug, or if it's a vaccine, or if it's a medical device, there are a lot of um, hoops that any given uh, company has to go through. And the first phase really revolves around developing an idea of how much you should give for the vaccine, and then it's safety, and then there's multiple um, scaling up of that process until you get to a point where you know this safe dose, you know the safety profile, how it's um, being cleared from the body. And for the case of vaccines, it's a little different than drugs. Um, But then you also know the population of people that might experience adverse effects and then you can bring it into market. And so we should know that there has been multiple um, safety and fail-safe methods put into place before it can even touch a human being. So um, I I did wanna mention that. Um, And then a lot of the times, and this is why it actually took nine months for the vaccine to really take off, is that there's so many other leads that are dropped off during the preclinical lead process. So, this this is like an emerging, these two, Moderna and Pfizer, those are the ones that have gone through that strenuous process of being deemed safe, being deemed having the effective dose, providing virus neutralizing antibodies, and then eventually, um, now that we are having more people taking it, we'll get more emerging data, but... The concerns of safety, I would say, have been determined previous to the vaccine being put on the market. And then again, like Franklin had mentioned, a lot of this is based on a vaccine discovery process that has been integrated in uh, biomedical research for a very long time now, so.
1: And I also wanted to put a little emphasis on something you said before about the safety. And as being me, me, as I work in clinical research myself, whenever we open a new study for a drug or a, tr- or a certain drug or treatment, that drug has already gone through so much rigorous um, examinations and process before we, even get the, before we even get the study to open up and enroll. So, so it's not like they just like, come up with something, okay, let's see if this works. There's a, there's, a, there's a specific process and rigorous examinations that these things go through to be deemed safe and effective. And the time span that it took for it to happen didn't compromise that process. This is just a matter of, of this modern science, first of all, like we're just able to do things in a few months that it took years before. And just the fact that we've already had so much funding and money put into this plus coronavirus It's the coronavirus itself, the family of viruses, isn't a new virus. So this wasn't necessarily made from scratch. So We had a lot to work with already, and due to the urgency of the situation, we were just, we just had to put everything we had into it. So that was able to expedite the process, but it didn't compromise the safety of the vaccine.
0: Okay, well, thank you to both of you. Um, It's really helpful to hear from folks who are actually working with the population who's been vaccinated. those of you who have taken it, Um, I think it's going to go a long way in building trust in some of the communities that have concerns. But I don't want to negate the concerns because I think the concerns are real. Um, When you take, for example, some of the studies that have done in the past, right? So the Tuskegee Institute study with syphilis. And then, also, there was uh, you know the government and their role in some of these studies, um like the c d c study on the m m r right the m m r vaccine where um it was found that um when black children were vaccinated prior to age three, they were more apt to come down with autism, and they didn't notify the population, you know, so people have had Some real historic, but certainly um, real reason to have to be concerned. There are even talks also that there is a tracking device, a microchip that's being put in the vaccine. I don't know. I'm just kind of sharing it because these are some of the the conversations that are happening in the communities on the ground, and so. People are hearing this. There's a, a real a reality to being disproportionately um, oppressed through science historically, starting with slavery, right? And so this is all bouncing off different people's heads. They're hearing it from their colleagues on the ground, and they have concerns. So I'm thinking. Um, So let me first ask those of you who are not working directly in the medical field, how do these concerns land for you? And those of you who are working in the medical field, particularly you, Franklin, as as a public health person, what else can you say to the Black community or communities of color? What can you say to them to help them understand that, this is one of those times when we can actually trust science and trust the government and that they'll do right by us. And they won't have two different types of vaccine, one with a B on it and one with a W on it, or, <laughs> or that the vaccines that are not kept under the right conditions will not will be given to black people. Because there are kind of a lot of concerns out there and I don't want to ignore them. So. Um, I'm going to ask Alexis and Nia to just talk about some of the concerns they have or those concerns they've heard from friends, colleagues, peers. And then we move on to those of you who are in the medical field to talk about what is it that what else can you say? You've said a lot, but what else can you say to help us um, debunk some of the myths out there?
4: I think, I mean, I'm older than probably everyone here. You know, historically, there's historical trauma that runs through many, um, I'll speak for Black families, right? And you are, you know, so we know about the book, Killing the Black Body, right? Raising awareness for us. So this is not like coming from nowhere, right? This is um, coming from a very deep place. And I want to call it, historical trauma in terms of our relationship with the institution, the health institution, right? Um, So a generation before me, or two generations before, we had one physician in our family and everyone had to go to that one doctor because it was, as you're saying, Christiane, it was about trust. So we knew we could trust him and what he had to say. And yes, everyone knows about ethics and research. That's nothing new. However, there was still this um, conversation, you know, about trust, trusting the institution. So um, I think it's good to have ambassadors like some of these young people speaking to the community who look like the community, right? Because this this transfer of the trust, I think, is a really critical point. And at the same time, as you are having those conversations, it's embracing that yes, there is a h- historical trauma. There is this relationship that people of color have with white institutions that has nothing. I mean, we still hear stories today. We know that. Doctors take an oath, for instance, and we still hear stories about the differential treatment that poor black people get versus rich white people. Like, that's a reality. We can't, you know, we have to hear that and accept it. So, but I do think it's wonderful having younger people who are um, public health professionals and medical professionals being able to extend this sense of... um, trust to others in the community. So I'm really like, told, applauding that you have them, you know, as guests today, because this is wonderful. Thank you.
0: Nia?
5: Um. Yeah. I would just say I hear it's it's really helpful to hear, especially from Franklin and Maria were talking about, you know, it's it's helpful to hear the other side of it and not just being like, oh, I'm not going to take it and not really having being educated about like what went into it. So that was definitely helpful to hear. But I think it's important also that the concerns are valid and like people's. You know emotional feelings about it shouldn't be invalidated just because oh we did the research like a lot of times the research is done but there's still not like the process isn't really fulfilled to the fullest you know and like the us has never has we've been in this for nine months they've never canceled rent they're evicting people from their homes like People are homeless, not able to have food. There's been, like, one stimulus check. And it's just, like, it's hard for people to just automatically be, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to trust this government that has always failed me every day of my life previously. Like, it's just hard to put those emotions aside and believe that this country has our well-being, like, is putting our well-being first, you know? And I think that the medical institutions need to acknowledge, like, the wrong and the harm that they've caused in order to really go forward with this. And, I mean, I do think it's unfortunate that the level of distrust, because it's something that we should be able to say, like, of course, why wouldn't I take the vaccine? They wouldn't do something like that to people. But the reality is, like, even if there is scientific evidence and there's been work and research put into it, like, people's agendas are still going to take over that and which is unfortunate but it's just how america has always been so i think the concerns are valid and they do need to be heard and addressed and but i'm also recognizing the other side of it where there has been work and things put into it but i still think that Especially, I don't know, like for me, because I've seen a lot of my white friends on social media posting things about like, you know, taking the vaccine and like how, just like kind of being very adamant about like persuading people to take it and things. And then they'll say things like, oh, how could you even like question whether you should take it or not? And it's just, I feel like it's hard for people to see the other side of it, which makes sense because they've never been, like, had not been able to trust their own government. But I do think that the concerns, like, need to be addressed um, by the government.
0: Thank you for that. So those of you who are working in the medical field, you heard, um, and, and you know, I'm sure you're hearing it from people in your personal lives as well, um, how incredible hard it is to trust the American government if you're a person of color um, and and trust institutions given a president our, the president outgoing president right? I mean he hasn't made it any easier right So um, given Donald Trump's um, racial divisive um, uh, behaviors, um, people are just not trusting anything coming from under his governance or his administration. Um, so please help us understand if you had to talk to people in your community, your personal community, not your professional community. What, what can you say to help us um, get over the, the, the disbelief, the distrust um, to a place where we can start to think about taking the, 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 the vaccine and trusting the vaccine with our loved ones, particularly our children and our elderly, right?
1: So I think one of the most important things in regarding this matter to kind of build a more faith in something like this is trust and transparency because I think it was Nina that just mentioned, like she mentioned that if she was really gonna consider taking this, she would talk to her doctor first. And then that brings in the conversation of the patient provider relationship. Not everyone, everyone may not trust their doctor the way some of us do. So it really starts from the ground up in terms of the level of transparency and trust that needs to happen. So for example, when we work with, with, with our patients, when we enroll them in clinical trials, they're pretty much entrusting us with their own well-being because they feel that we've been transparent enough with them. And we've told them everything that they need to know pertain to their own safety in the study to say, okay, like I'll sign on to this because I trust you guys. I know that like, you guys aren't going to do anything, um, anything um, shady or sketchy to us. And, you know, we have to go, we go through like consenting. We tell them what they have to do for the study, what their part is, what we do. And we also give them information. We give them websites because the information for these clinical trials are publicly available. I believe it's clinicaltrials.gov. And we told them you can go on this website, you can learn everything about the clinical trial that you need to know. And you can also ask us and we have you have us here. So we need more transparency, I feel, and more places people can go to find trustworthy information regarding this matter. And I feel we need to help people understand the, the whole idea of vaccines because I feel that we don't, we don't talk enough about it. It's just kind of the thing that we just go do once once a year when they take the flu shot and people just say whether they're going to take it or not. But there's real reasons behind why we do this. And it has to start with the transparency from, like, the, the pharmaceutical companies to, like, the state health departments down to, like, the doctors and the patients. I feel there has to be transparency at every level because if something's disrupted somewhere, it's going to make it harder for the rest of us because... We're not gonna necessarily have trust if we hear that this person over here had this issue. And then like, okay, like if I go to my doctor and she tells me something different, who do I believe? I feel the lack of transparency regarding like vaccines and public health as a whole has really hindered the, the faith in it, as well as this kind of militarized fashion that we have when it comes to something like this. So, cause a lot of people wonder, like where is it gonna be required like it's not gonna help anything if we just roll into this neighborhood and say, "Hey, we, you have to take this vaccine if you don't take it before this day, we're gonna find you." That's not that's not like a good way to approach it. We, when it comes to vaccines or public health as a whole, we have to we have to approach this in a more nurturing way, or like in a in a way that we look to nurture rather than try and rule and like dictate over. So. Instead of saying like, hey, like coming to a governor or a health department, hey, you guys have to give your people this vaccine at this rate or else we're going to do this or we're going to take funding from you. And that just results in like a whole militarized, authoritative fashion to distributing a vaccine when we should really be like, hey, like this is the issue that we see is happening where you are. This is our solution. So how can we work with you to ensure that your population, the people that you're responsible for are able to get this efficiently and that it's safe and effective and that their safety is a priority rather than just rolling into a neighborhood where trust can already be hindered. And we're saying, hey, you have to take this vaccine. You don't have a choice.
0: Okay, Thank you. Maria, did you want to say something? And also Ben, I'm going to come to you next. Yeah,
3: um, I actually, when, when we were discussing this, actually the reason I had met Sneha, I think last time we is that I, I actually used to do research at WIC at, in, um, in Hartford. And so I actually spent quite a bit of time with the population that has been for generation been marginalized in research, as well as taken, you know, advantage of in through research procedures um, in the past. And and Alexis had mentioned a few of the trials, the MMR trial, the Tuskegee trial, and I, I do have to recognize that, you know, um, there is, there's two sides. There's a role for uh, black and brown people to be in research and be um, represented in, in, the, in the work. But then there's also, it, it's not just enough to say that we need to include them in the research. It's, we need to really take that extra Step to ensure that they understand that it's very transparent what we're acquiring from them and what they're contributing to. Um, And I don't, I, I can't always say that that process is always very clear. Um, And the, the second thing is that um, you know, it as a in in terms of provider-patient relationship. I actually spent quite a bit of time in dialysis um, during the COVID pandemic. I I mostly did my um, clinical like work doing um, telemedicine calls related to patients undergoing dialysis, and so that's a very um, vulnerable population. Not only because of they're medically vulnerable, but many of them have coexisting comorbidities um, that would make them more likely. To suffer major consequences from COVID, but also they experience a lot of health disparities. I think that uh, patients in the dialysis group they they experience some of the most health disparities. That it, it's it's such a stark um, difference from any other specialty I've re, I've experienced um, so far in medicine. And you know, working in that population, I realized kind of how how far just knowing someone's story can go. And I think it's really from eliciting that story that you can get trust from from patients because especially um, vulnerable populations, they're so used to being poked and prodded and not taken seriously, not um, taken with uh, not having their, um, their concerns listened to. And so I think we need to have conversations like this but also conversations on a one-on-one basis with our patients, you know, eliciting their concerns, but also not like um, Nia had mentioned, not, not invalidating that they have this, this con- these concerns. And so that doesn't happen in a day. I think that that is an ongoing process that, and I, I, it's nice to see people of color in medicine And I think that that's actually something that I've always been a a strong advocate for because I've seen that there are differences in patient outcomes or differences in level of trust related to having people, um, having doctors look like the patients they're taking care of. So so I think that there's multiple steps that have to be made. And, and I don't believe that that's going to happen in a day or in pro, or project warp speed as the, as the vaccine is.
0: Yeah, that, that's just. Thank you for that. So, so far we heard from Franklin saying that you should Um, trust is needed and transparency is needed and also from Maria we're hearing you say knowing people's story listening to them listening to their stories and validating their concerns or ways of or strategies of communicating um, around the uh, validity and also the strength of of the vaccine Um, and I just wanted to check in with Ben to see if he would like to add anything to what he heard already or emphasize
2: anything. Yeah, so Franklin mentioned um, trust a lot. And like, how can I tell people to take the vaccine if I don't take it myself, you know? Like, if I take it, then I'm walking the walk and I'm talking the talk. and. I took the vaccine at work. A lot of people have asked me how I'm feeling and stuff. And I feel like it's making people want to take it more because they see that I'm, I'm okay. It's funny because my mom is against the vaccine. She, When I told her I got the vaccine, she said she was going to pray for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but my dad's a nurse and he took the vaccine. So now she's praying for two people. But like... <laughs> It's easier for me to tell people to take the vaccine than tell them to trust their doctor. Because if they see me do it, then they'll be more inclined to do it. Like, it'll be very hypocritical of me. And I remember when I was getting the vaccine, um, I don't know if you guys know, there's this guy his name's Keith Grant. He is the senior, let me see, senior director for infection prevention at Hartford HealthCare. And he was one of the 15 people in the group of us that, that got the vaccine first. And I remember he said to me, Like how can I tell all these people to take the vaccine if I don't do it myself? So I I think it starts there. Like on a personal level, you can't just tell people to trust. I mean, we don't know who people's doctors are, but if we do it ourselves, then people will be more inclined to do it.